been looking at as to who is Jesus. It's really answering this question. And so this morning we want to see that Jesus is unity. He is the unity in the kingdom. You know, I think about how people have to be going in the same direction in order for there to be unity. Uh, my father-in-law uh, used to like to take me fishing. And we used to go fishing and we would take uh, the kids sometimes. And one time we got a, a rowboat. We went on this lake and we got in this rowboat. And we said to him, why, why don't you get the one with the motor? And he said, I don't need a motor. I have you guys. And I thought, okay. And that was fine until you're on one side of the lake. And he said, look at that over there. And he said, we, let's try that spot over there. So we would row all the way over there. And back. But the thing is, there I was sitting in one spot, my brother-in-law sitting in, in the spot behind me, and we would have to row. What happened when I was rowing one direction and he was trying to row a different direction? How did that work out? Not really good. That's exactly right. It, it just didn't work. We would either go in circles or we wouldn't go anywhere. And what would happen if I was rowing and he wasn't? It would be a lot harder for me and he would just be sitting there. Now, the, ne- the opposite never happened. I was always faithful and always rowing. He was the one who was slacking off. But seriously, when, when we look at the idea of unity, when we look at it, you have, to be, you have to be zeroed in on what we are doing, what you're going after, where you are headed, going towards the right goal. If you look in your bulletin and you flip it over and you look down at the bottom, this is not just something that we, well, we need something to take up some space and we put it in here. But at the bottom there, you see what our mission statement is. What are we doing? Why are we here? And you can underline the words reaching, teaching, equipping. But it says that we desire to glorify God by reaching all people. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter what language they speak. That is what we desire to to reach. We desire to reach all people near and far. So your next door neighbor, the person across the street, and the people around the world. We want to reach them with what? For what purpose? With the gospel. That is the goal. And we want to teach believers the Scriptures so that they can become like Christ. Because it is through the teaching of the Scripture, it is through that, that we become like Christ. That we take part of the Word and we grow. And we want to obey Him. And we want to equip people to serve Him. Giving them the opportunities. Giving them the the tools that they need to serve the Lord Christ. You know, Jesus here in this passage, in this short little section, beginning in verse 1 and ending in verse 3, we see that Jesus unites a range of very different kinds of people for the sole purpose of the kingdom. He unites them. He brings them together so that they are able to go forth so that they are able to to minister, that they will have one purpose. So let's kind of dive into this here for a few minutes. Notice that it says in verse 1, the very beginning, we want to see what Jesus' focus was on. What was His focus on? What What was Jesus looking at? What was His goal? Where was He aiming We see that Jesus' focus was on building the kingdom. Oh, there are lots of things that Jesus did. And there were lots of things that Jesus could do, right? But His focus was on building the kingdom. Notice it says, soon afterwards, He went went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And we'll just stop right there. 
It says that Jesus went on. That, that phrase in English, in Greek, I think one word there, went on. It means that he went traveling through. He, he, was, on a, he was on the move. He was, he was on tour. That's kind of how we would look at it. He was on a preaching tour. He wasn't going in and staying here at this stuff. He was on, you might think of it as an evangelistic crusade. That's the idea here, that after he had done these things, and remember all the things that he had, uh, he had just done in chapter 7. He had healed the centurion's servant, and he had raised the, the widow's son. He spoke with the messengers from John the Baptist there, and forgave the sinful woman there, and dealt with the Pharisee. And so, now that he has ministered there, he's continuing his Galilean ministry, and he's going through the cities and villages. He's not going to stop. He's not going to plant down in one place, but he's going from village to village, and he is bringing the good news of the kingdom. One of the great things is this is what Jesus set out to do. This is what He was starting to do. And it's great when you start something and you continue on it. Have you, have you ever started something? And you were aiming for this and then you end up over here? I, I've known people who have done that. They're, they're saying, well, I'm, I'm going to take a vacation. I'm going to Florida. And two weeks later they come back and you say, how was Florida? And they say, oh, I didn't make it there. Well, what are you talking about? Yeah, I ended up going to Nevada. How did you get there? Well, we were driving down here and there was some construction, so we just took this road and we, we just kept going. And you're like, wow, you did not end up at your destination. Well, they ended up somewhere, but I'm just saying, they, they, they got off track. See, Jesus, it says in Luke 4.43, this is what Jesus said. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. And here it is, for I was sent for this purpose. This is the reason I came. Don't get off. Don't get off. Don't get sidetracked there. And so Jesus did this. Notice this is what he, by the way, is going to send his disciples to do as well. In Luke chapter 9, we're going to be getting there very soon. And it says that he sent them out. This is the 12. He sends the, the 12 out. What does he send them out to do? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Later on in Luke chapter 16, it says that the law and prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. He, he continued. He sent to others to preach the gospel, and he continued to preach the gospel. And that certainly flows right down to us. That is our job, to proclaim the gospel. To proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends. We are called to do this. Mark 1.15 tells us that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? How do you enter the kingdom of God? This is what it says. Repent and believe the gospel. He does not say, hey, I've got a wonderful plan for your life. If you just, if you just come to me and just turn over a new leaf, I, I've, got a new, I've got a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't say, well, you know, if you come to me, you just need to add a little of me to you. Put, you know, everybody needs a little religion. He doesn't say, you just need to add a little. He says that you need to repent and believe the gospel. That is what the totality of being a Christian is about. Transformation. 1 Corinthians 15, turn with me there. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul on packages what is meant by this phrase what is meant by this term the gospel the gospel of course means the good news we all like to hear good news right you hope to hear good news that uh, as something that you rejoice in here the gospel is indeed the good news what is the gospel Notice, beginning in verse 1, I want to work down through this just a little bit, because it says, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, by the way, the Corinthian church was, they were very, I mean, what, what great Christians they were. 
They really had their act together, didn't they? <laughs> they, they did not. They, they needed major help. They needed Christ. And so that's why Paul is going to say this. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Now there are many who will think, wait a minute, I, I had the gospel preached to me a long time ago. When I was five years old. When I was seven. Why do I need the gospel now? I need to move beyond that. I need to get past that. He says, no, you are, notice what he calls them in, first, in, chapter, one, 15, in chapter 15 verse 1. He calls them brothers, right? So he, he's, he is referring to them as believers. And he says, I want to remind you of the gospel which you received and in which you stand. That means you, you don't move beyond the Gospel. I'm reminding of it uh, uh, to you of it. You need it continuously. And the message that was shared in verse 2 is by which you are being saved. Do you see that? He says you are being saved. You know, Scripture refers to salvation or the Gospel is as I have been saved, I was saved, people, and that's generally how we talk about it, right? We have, when were you saved? And then you, you, you know, the people think, well, you know, sometime when I was a kid, or, or I remember exactly when, and some people have, you know, think you have to have it written down in the front of your Bible and the exact date. It's, you know, but the point is, are you trusting in Christ? And so we think about it, well, I was saved. But Paul here says you are being saved. You currently are being saved. You are being changed. You are, you are changing to become like Christ. He is saving you. He is saving you from sin. He is saving you from Satan. He is saving you from yourself. And it also speaks of that you will be saved. Because you're not fully there yet. Neither am I. We're not fully there yet. But there is a day when we will be fully saved. It's when we die and it's at the resurrection. Don't, don't miss that. It's not just when we die and our soul goes to be with the Lord. It's at the resurrection. Because right now you are body and soul, right? So when you're just soul, heaven, no body... No earthly body like Jesus's, But there's coming a day when He's going to resurrect you. And we're going to be celebrating that in a couple weeks, right? Resurrection Sunday. And that's why we're here on Sunday morning, right? Because this is the day of resurrection. This is the beginning of a new week. This is the beginning of the new life that we have in Christ. This is the Gospel. It's not just adding a little something. It's a total replacement of who we are. The old is passed away. The new has come. And this is the great joy. But there's a warning here in verse 2. He says that you are being saved if you hold fast to the Word I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. See, there are people that believe in vain. They come and they believe, oh, oh, you know, my life is a mess. I need this. And they take it. And then something happens. We're going to be looking at that in the, in the coming weeks. But somehow it gets choked out. It may be the riches of the world. It may be the problems of the world. It may be issues that you're having. And somehow you just leave. And when you leave, he says that is believing in vain. And so he, he gives this warning that don't, don't be like that. You need to keep on. And we understand that the one who is keeping you believing is God. It's not your effort. It is God holding on to you. First Peter 1 talks about that. God guards your faith. He holds it. That's why when Peter was about to deny Jesus, Jesus told him, Satan wants to sift you as wheat. But what does Jesus tell him? But I have prayed for you, Peter. Now you think, Lord, I am glad that you prayed for Peter. Because you see the evidence of what? Peter coming back, don't you? 
Did he fail? Absolutely. Did he deny Jesus? Absolutely. But he came back. And why did he come back? Because Jesus had prayed for him. And here's what I want you to understand. In John 17, in that very section, what does it say? That Jesus prays for you in your faith too. So we, we need to hold on to Christ, but that's because He is holding on to us. So, so He holds, we call this perseverance, okay? To use a buzzword. So, verse 3, this is the gospel. He says, I delivered to you, first of all, uh, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He died. He died not for just a mere example. He didn't die just for to show, hey, this is how you truly show somebody that you love them. No, He died for our sins. Atonement. He died in our place substitutionary atonement. He atoned in my place. Did you sin this week? If you say no, there's your sin. Alright? I did. I, there were times I, I didn't want to. I hope you didn't want to. But I did. I sinned against the Lord. And yet, yet I think my, my sin is forgiven. Not because I'm good, but because Christ is good. Because He died. He took the wrath that I deserved. He died for my sin. And because He died for my sin, this was according to the Scriptures. This was according to the plan of God. This was all the way from the Old Testament. This was the promised one that Luke refers to. The one who was to come. This is the one that John was looking for. The one who was to come. And so he says that yes, Jesus died for our sins, but He didn't stay dead. That's the good hope. It's not just that Jesus died. If Jesus just died and He stayed dead, then our faith is in vain. We may as well just hurry up and beat the crowd and go to lunch right now. If Jesus is still dead, what hope do we have? Because as we go back, as we talked about earlier, it's not just the fact of the, the death, but it's the resurrection. It's the new life that we have. The totality. And so we see the, the promise of this. Because Jesus was buried proving His death and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was raised. This is the greatest news you could ever tell anyone. This is the greatest news because it doesn't just get somebody a ticket to heaven. It's supposed to change everything about them. It's supposed to change the way you view your neighbor. It's supposed to change the way you view your enemy. It's supposed to change the way you view your wife or your husband or your kids. It's supposed to change the way you view everything. That's why Paul said, I want to remind you of the Gospel. I want to remind you of that. And so we, as the people of God, application number one, if you're taking notes there, is don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked. It's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to, to start thinking, oh, i got to start thinking about this or adding this. And, and we need to stay focused. Don't get sidetracked. Don't move beyond the gospel. Don't think you don't need the gospel. As a church, we can't think, hey, let's start doing this. We need to keep the gospel on the forefront. This is what people need. They need the gospel. If Jesus started out with the gospel and ended with the gospel, who are we to say, eh, we know better than Jesus? So we don't want to do that. It was His purpose, and it should be ours. Show the Gospel to your family. You know, when I think about the, the smallest unit, that, that's what we need. Show the Gospel to your family. Mom and dad, show that to your kids. Husbands, show it to your wives. Wives, show it to your husbands. Grandparents, show it to your grandkids. 
show them the worth of who they are is found in being identified in Christ. Teach them that. Show them that. Now here's a question. Jesus had this as His mission. Going back to Luke chapter 8, Jesus had this as His mission. Was He going to do it all by Himself? Was He going to go at it all alone? Of course not. He was going to show us an example. He was going to show us how we are to go about doing this. So, number two here in verses 1b, the second part there of it, all the way to verse 3, is that Jesus chose many members for one body. Jesus chose many members, many members, but yet there's one body. So I want to kind of look at this in two different ways, okay? The first part I want to look at, reading down through here, I want to show the, the unity, to take the unit as a whole, and to, to look at it that way. But then the second part I want to look, because he talks about this, is the various members. You know, you have one body, but then you have many members. So it makes sense to look at it both those ways. So let's look at it that way. It says, and the twelve were with him. Who were the twelve? You go back to Luke 6. We talked a lot about that. We went through all of them individually. Jesus didn't go alone here. He chose the twelve. They were various men. They didn't all have the same job, but they had the same goal. You know, we think about that. We, we talk about sports. Right? You don't have the all the same positions, but you have the same goal. And so when we look at here, this is, this is what they were doing. Jesus had 12 disciples. They were men. They were fishermen. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were tax collectors. Some of them were zealots. Boy, how did they get along? You remember going when we went through, we looked at all 12 of them. And how they were very different. Some of them were very quiet and administrative. Some of them were, some of them were very loud. They were very different, however. And in this, they, they laid down their outward, outside identities to promote the identity of being a Christian, a little Christ, one who follows Christ. That's what they sought to do. And then we see that there were women doing the same thing. Look at it in verse 2 and 3. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And he lists three of them specifically. Mary called Magdalene out of whom he called, he, uh, seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and <clears throat> Herod, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others whom he does not name, who provided for them out of their means. Here we see all of these, and they, they all loved because of their love for Christ because of what Christ had done. You go back to chapter 7 and you see what did the sinful woman do? She was forgiven what? Much. And since she was forgiven much, she did what? She loved much. There was the Pharisee. What, what did he love? He loved little. He loved only a little. Why? Because he thought, I, I, I don't really have anything to be forgiven for. And we talked about the fact that, let me tell you what, you have a lot to be forgiven. Your debt is not 50 bucks. It's 5 billion or trillion. Since now we're talking trillions. Okay? You know how much a trillion is? I'm not going to get into it, but it's a lot. It's like inconceivable. And so the idea here is it, it, it's an astronomical amount of money. You're never going to be able to pay it back. This is our sin. And so when He forgives you everything, you want to give Him what? Everything. And that's how these, these loved. They were knit together. They, they were loving one another. They were loving Christ. 
And they were working together. They weren't looking at each other saying, well, how come you get to do that? And how come you... They were, they were working together. They were... Application number two, they were promoting unity. They were promoting unity for the sake of the kingdom. They were trying to roll the same way. They were trying to go to the same place. Now, I think about football. I think about, you know, the, the wide receiver runs out and catches the ball. And you got guys on the front line. I always feel badly for the linemen. You know? Because they don't get the glory they deserve. Do they? There they are. They're, they're up there. And, I mean, they're, keep, they're giving the quarterback the opportunity to throw the ball or to hand the ball off. They're the ones making the hole so that the, the running back can make it. They're the one giving them time to do all of that. If it wasn't for them, it wouldn't be... You wouldn't have anything. Tom Brady would not be Tom Brady if he had a bad line. Right? I remember those old commercials. Dan Marino from Pittsburgh. Anyway, Dan Marino doing those isotoner glove commercials saying protect the hands of those who protect you. And he stood there with his, his line. Right? Because he, he was saying, listen, these are the people that protect me. They were a team. They were going for the same goal. And that's what they, these folks were doing. The, the, the men and the women led by Jesus, they were all rowing in the same direction. And that's exactly what we need to be. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Give you a couple verses here to, to, to back this up, to show us. In, in 1 Peter 3, 8, he says, Finally, all of you... Have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. Don't, don't be swaying back and forth. Have unity of mind. Sympathy. Brotherly love. A tender heart. And a humble mind. You look at all of those things that he says there, and when you put all of those together, you can't have unity if you don't have sympathy. You can't have unity if you don't have a tender heart caring for people. You can't have unity if you are prideful because who do you care about? You care about yourself. You care about your way, my way. That's all I want. I don't care about you. I don't care about the overall mission. I want people to see me. And he says, don't do that. By the way, isn't it interesting that what book of the Bible was that found? In First Peter. First Peter. Now, when you think of Peter, do you think humility? God had to teach him humility. And that's the thing. Isn't that the beauty of being a Christian? Peter was unsympathetic. He did not care. He wanted to be the greatest. He did not have a tender heart. And he certainly was not humble. And yet God changed him. He changed him. What changed him? It was the Gospel that changed him. The Gospel changed him. And because he was changed, he was then able to write to the elect exiles and encourage them to follow the things that he had now learned. Do you get that? He changed. So, so look at people. They may be unsympathetic. They might not be lovely. They might, but see where they can be, not where they are. And it's only the Gospel that can get them to that point. Philippians 1, 27-28. Philippians 1, 27-28 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel. You want, you want your life, the manner of life, the way you live, you want it to be worthy of the Gospel. And he says, so whether I come and see you or am, I'm absent, I may hear do that what? Paul says, I want to see that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for what? So the church gets a lot of money. So that the church makes a lot of programs. 
He says, I want you to strive for the faith of the gospel with one mind. You're, I mean, you're, you're locked in. You're of one mind. What's it like to have one mind with someone? It's to be in agreement. It's to be saying, yes, this, this is what we want to do. We are going forward and we're, we're together on this. And each person, if it's just two people, each person may be making sacrifices. But the sacrifices are f- worth it because of the greater goal. And that's what he's saying here. He says we need to have unity and that's what the body needs to have. Now, I know you younger people don't have this problem. But we older people, and I say we older people now, right? Because I wake up in the morning and I'm, I, I hurt. And I'm like, what I do? All I did was sleep. Okay? Now I've heard it gets worse and I'm looking forward to that. But here's what I'm asking you. You older folks, and when I say older, I mean, you know, you can be younger than I am. Your body doesn't work the way it used to, does it? No, it doesn't. Has your brain ever told your body to go one way, but your feet went the other? Has that ever happened to you? And you end up on the ground? You're like, I'm going here, and, and, and you just you fall. Has that ever happened to you? I see some of you admitting it. Some of you are not. What happened? The body, the entire body must be going the same direction. It must all be in. It must be striving and moving together. And that's what we need to be. We need to be doing that. Now I want you to notice... Something though, there is a unity of members, a oneness, but notice that there is a distinction in members, isn't there? He very specifically names two different groups. He says that there were the twelve who were the men, and then there were women who went with him as well. So he specifically points this out. The men, again, were the twelve. If you notice that Jesus did not appoint women to be apostles, to be these disciples, he appointed men. This was intentional. Jesus knew what he was doing when he did this. He said he was putting forth that they would be leaders in the church. Now, if you notice in this in, in the texts that the men many times mess up. He hardly ever mentions anything about the ladies messing up, does he? But yet who does he put as leaders in the church? The men. We see that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, this was from the very beginning. That an elder, a pastor, shepherd, overseer, whichever word you want to use, because all those Greek words mean the same thing, that they must be the husband of one wife. Literally, a one-woman man. Now, I know in today's culture that might be a little confusing, but a one-woman man is, it means a one-woman man, a man who's committed to his wife. That's what it means. There's no ambiguity about that. Some people like to, well, what does one-woman mean? Does that mean only one wife at a time? And I'm like, okay, well, you might be able to argue about that, but nowadays people have to argue, well, what is woman and what is a man? And, and, but we're, we're understanding, listen, this is the plain, normal understanding of the Word of God. It's, it's not meant to be difficult. The perspicuity of Scripture, that you can read it, it's clear. It's not hard. There are some hard parts, but this is not one of them. Literally a one-woman man. First Timothy 2 gives the theological background based on creative order. We know that in Genesis 1, 1-2, that God created man and then He created woman. 
because she was to be a helper for him. And God places the headship, that leadership role, there for the men in the home and in the church. First Timothy two twelve to thirteen, he says that women are not to teach or to exercise authority over man. For and the reason that he gives that is not that it was cultural. The reason he gives it is theological. He says because Adam was formed first and then Eve. So he says that this this is the reason why this is to to be this way. It's been that way from the beginning. And to go outside of that is to go outside of the natural order. But he doesn't spend time talking about the men, does he? He's already done that. He's going to go forth and he's going to talk about the women. He's going to talk about the, the women who are going forth to, to encourage and to proclaim to others and through their deeds and even through their words the, the message that is going forth. Luke mentions a lot of women in his gospel. I want you to just listen to this and think about it. Luke chapter 1 and 2, who's the focus on? I know ultimately it's about Jesus, but really it's between what? Two women, Elizabeth and Mary, right? Story goes back and forth. And by the way, who's the bad guy in there? Zechariah, right? The guy. Not Joseph. He was good, right? But you have Mary. You have Elizabeth. You have Anna in uh, chapter 2. You have Peter's mother-in-law. You have the widow of Nain. You have the sinful woman in chapter 7. You have the women who minister here, right here. You have the hemorrhaging woman in chapter 8. You have Mary and Martha in chapter 10. You have the crippled woman in 13. The parable of the woman and the lost coin in chapter 15. The parable of the widow and the judge in chapter 18. The widow's might in 21. The women at the crucifixion, 23. Women at the tomb, 24. And the report of the women at the tomb, 24 also. There, there's a lot of, of in the story showing forth. Look at the importance. The men are going to go forth and proclaim. The women are going to go forth and have their role as well. They are equal in the sight of God. They're both made in the image of God. Yet they have distinct roles. Let's talk about these ladies for just a moment. Before I do that, I would mention... It's not hard to go through the Gospels and find men who are antagonistic towards Jesus, is it? You could probably think of several right now. But you know in the Gospels, there are zero women who are antagonistic towards Jesus. A couple commentators pointed that out. I just thought that that was fascinating. And just by way of proxy it's it's an interesting thing that it's much easier to get ladies to come to church or to be interested in faith than it is men and as a side note that that sometimes people think well the the ladies are more interested you know the ladies started that bible study and they told me that they have more ladies signed up right now than the men Now, the downfall of that was they told me that, and men like competition, right? So listen, guys, this Wednesday, we want to beat them. We want to find out. I don't care who you have to get. You find some guys to come here. We're having chili. We're having, we're having teaching straight from the text. So we want to beat them, okay? We want to show them that, you know, seriously, we, we just want to grow the kingdom. That's what we want. And we want to win. <laughs> but it is true that many times, not all the time, but many times the ladies are the ones who, who are in tune, who, who love Jesus, who will come to church, who will love the Lord. But notice here Jesus is, or Luke rather, is going to specifically mention three ladies. Mary Magdalene, first of all, now, Mary Magdalene, she is Mary called Magdalene. This is the fact that she was from the area of Magdala, 
which was a town that was on the uh, Sea of Galilee on the western shore, and it was about three miles north of Tiberias. So uh, she was just known as Mary, as the, the lady who is from this area. Now, many people have associated Mary Magdalene as the lady in chapter 7, as the sinful woman. Remember, she was the prostitute, most likely, and they have associated that with her. The only thing Scripture ever says about Mary Magdalene, however, was that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. There is no evidence whatsoever that Mary Magdalene was this woman in chapter 7. As a matter of fact, it seems rather odd that Luke introduces her here and says that and doesn't say, well, she was the lady who wiped Jesus' feet with her tears. Or, or that she, or, or he did not mention her name in chapter 7. And so chances are this is a very different person. So she was one who was controlled by demons. Now, did she literally have seven, or is seven just being used here as the number of perfection? In other words, that she was totally overtaken by demons. I don't really know. It doesn't necessarily matter. The point is that she had been controlled by this. She had somehow been living a life where she gave control over to these, this demonic oppression, and because of this, she needed deliverance. And since she needed deliverance, the only one who could deliver her was Jesus. She went to the right person, and Jesus delivered her, and she was ever, ever grateful. We see Mary, Mary Magdalene, and we see Joanna. Now, Joanna was a woman who was very influential. How do we know that? Well, it says here, that she was married to, she was the the wife of Cusa. And that this man, her husband, was Herod's household manager. I guess it's possible that she was the household manager, but most commentators are saying that she was, it was her husband. Now, as you know, Herod was not a good guy. He was not a good leader, was he? But yet, what do we see? We see people who are in and working with corrupt government people, yet they're using that influence of their position to help promote the kingdom. Didn't didn't Paul talk about that? When he was in chains and there were those who were able to go forth into the kingdom, uh, the, the earthly kingdom, for the eternal kingdom. And so here was a a woman of influence. She knew people. This was not, this was not, get it? He, her husband was not the butler. He was, he was the, the, the manager of all of the estate. He knew who was who. He knew what went where. He knew, he had access to people. This man was very influential and thereby she was. She was a very influential person, and yet here, what does she do? She's following Jesus. Though she probably had very good means, because you weren't doing that job and getting paid nothing, because she had very good means and a very good lifestyle, and knew people high up, it didn't matter. She knew she needed deliverance, and she needed Jesus. She followed Him. Finally, we come to Susanna. And Susanna doesn't say anything. It just lists her name. Now, I take it where it says Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. I want to take that and at least assume something that she had some sort of means. She, she probably had some money some way. There were many others who did this as well. But she was very generous. She was giving. She took care of them. She was a servant. She's kind of like many of the other apostles who are listed. You remember we did that, where we listed many of the twelve, and the only thing you know about them is their name. You don't really know any, Scripture doesn't say hardly anything about them. And so we see here and learn about there is a great unity 
in mission, but there's a great diversity in who God is using. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12 for just a minute. Looking at verse 12 through 31. I'm not going to go all the way to 31. But I want you to look beginning at verse 12 and just see something. Paul understood this and learned this and is fleshing it out. He says, just as the one, just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. So in the church there's no distinction. The only thing is you are in Christ. And the gift, the the member of the body that you are is important. So we see the unity. In verse 14 and following, we see the diversity. Notice he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He says, "If, If the foot should say, Eh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Do you use your hand? I don't know how you drove here. Right? You've got to hold on to that. Steering wheel. I don't know how you combed your hair for those who have hair. <laughs> you know? How, how, how do you do these things? Well, some people can adapt and get along. But he, he's saying, listen, does the, does the hand say, well, I'm not part of the body because I'm not the whole body? No. He said that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, that would be freaky, wouldn't it? Like the sci-fi movies. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, that'd be weird. Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, here's the key. So you see a lot of diversity. You got ears and eyes and a nose. But here's the point. Look at verse 18. And get this. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. It is God who makes the ear. God who makes the nose. God who makes each member and puts them the way that they want. And when people start to mess with that using fuzzy interpretations to try to make things that are not proper, the body gets messed up. And so Jesus here is is previewing the church. You have... Men and women striving in unity. If men are the head, then women are the heart. You see, you need both of them, don't you? You want to pluck out your heart? How are you going to live? You want to cut off your head? How are you going to live? You need them. They're essential. And so we see this idea of we need to follow what Jesus has done. There are different functions, yet essential, equal in worth. And so application number three, we want to be diligent in your calling. Be diligent in what God has called you to do. We don't need to worry about what other people need to do. We don't need to be worried about what the greater church is doing. You know what we need to focus This room right here. This is what we need to focus on. Make sure that we have our understanding right. That we have our hearts right. That we have what we are doing is right. This is what we need to focus on. Let me give you another passage because of time I'm not going to turn there, but in 1 Peter 4, verse 10 to 11, you can look it up a little bit later on, but he talks about there are two different, two different great ways of understanding the gifts. You have the speaking gifts, and you have the serving gifts. And he says, let the one who serves serve by the strength of God. Let the one who speaks speak as the oracles of God, which means you better be very careful not to contradict what God is telling you. 
And it says, so that everything from God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We all have received a gift. Every believer has a gift. And we are called to utilize those for, not ourselves, but for the glory of God. So utilize what God has given you. Many times we just find, we make it kind of complicated. What are you passionate about doing in serving the Lord? What, What do you want to do? Okay? That, doesn't, that doesn't mean if you don't want to do something that the Lord hasn't called you. He might work and equip you to do it later. But what are you passionate about doing? But we have to be doing something. We have to be using our gift, not neglecting it. We must be doing it. And so God is the great maker of the church. Jesus, the Lord, sets forth showing us the example. This is His body. And what we need to care about is our church. We need to care about what we are doing. My mom used to tell me all the time, don't worry about other people. You worry about yourself. There's enough to worry about right there. And there's enough to worry about right here. What I mean is it's a full-time job just keeping up. And that's what we need to be concerned about. And so let us be the church that is focused on what Jesus has done. Focused, rowing in the same direction. Focused on spreading the kingdom. Sharing the gospel. On unified as the body. Being unified through Christ. Exhorting one another. Encouraging one another. Helping one another in the body. When, when you hurt a part of your body, you go to that part. You don't cut your finger and say, oh well. You, you go and you care about that finger, don't you? You go and you care about the people that are hurting. And then thirdly, we need to exercise our giftedness. Not so that people can look at us, but for the glory of God. May God take this truth. May He impart it on our hearts. And may we be the people of God that bring glory to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for Your Word which gives us instruction. Lord, I am thankful for the folks who are here this morning. Thank You, Lord, for our church. I thank You, Lord, for the men who serve in so many different ways. Lord, I thank You for the women in our church who serve, who love You, who are passionate for You. Lord, I thank You that we have a unity. And I pray that You will make it even stronger. Lord, I pray that You will raise up godly men who will live for Your glory, that You will help us who are older to entrust the Gospel to younger men, to train them up. That, Lord, You will bless the women in our church who are so faithful at teaching Your Word to others, at caring for those who need the care Lord, I pray that You will bless them and teach them as they teach the younger women. Lord, I pray that we will go forth in unity. Lord, this morning, we gather all together. No distinction. doesn't matter who you are. But during this week, we will separate a little bit, encourage one another in the gifts that we need to Go forth. And then next Lord's Day, we will gather again for the glory of Christ as one body. Lord, it is my prayer that if there's anyone here who needs Jesus, oh, we all need You, Lord. We need You every hour, every minute. We need You. But they've never come to You I pray that You will 
work in their heart and in their life and draw them to the glorious Savior. Draw them, Lord, that they will know you and love you. They will repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And then you'll change them. Lord, I thank you that you have saved us. You are saving us. And the glorious hope that you will save us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And now, may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be with you all. Amen. May the Lord bless you this afternoon. Let this be our song It is Back on you
forever sing Holy, holy, holy Holy, holy, holy Is the Lord God Almighty Is the Lord God Almighty Everybody singing Holy, holy, holy Holy, holy, holy Is the Lord God Almighty Is the Lord God Almighty Who takes away our sin? Who takes away our sin? 